Today's Byword Big Talk stemmed from a previous episode's rant and subsequent discussion. Today we talk the state of streaming. Plus, this week's nerd nightmare hits close to home and possibly causes us to reconsider our friend groups. Welcome into the brisk fall embrace of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast nerdy enough to compare high fantasy television series, yet cool enough to gritty with the best of them. Dave and I are here to discuss the state of streaming in today's Byword Big Talk, an episode idea that stemmed from my dear friend's stereotypical Germanic ire at the cancellation of his beloved paper girls. Look what you have wrought, Amazon. But first, Dave is going big time nerd in this week's... Speaking of stereotypes, chess. Dude, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know what is in the water. And you will see that that pun is totally intended in just a moment. But, you know, there have been a series of really strange cheating scandals that have been rocking various, let's call them professional groups. I don't want to say sports because it's really weird to talk about pro poker in sporting terms. Um, Too much sitting around, perhaps. But uh, this all started with probably the most famous story going around online in a long time, and that is that there has been a cheating allegation leveled against a chess pro. Um, So we had Magnus Carlsen, who is a world chess champion, uh, level accusations against fellow Grandmaster Hans Niemann uh, of cheating, uh, basically saying that his quote-unquote over-the-board progress has been unusual. So he took a, a, a loss uh, from Niemann at the Sinkfield Cup earlier this month, um, and then uh, was supposed to play him again, and after just one move, he was like, you know, forget it, I'm out, which is like unheard of in chess. Um, and he said, uh, and I quote, Carlson said, and I quote, he wasn't tense or even fully concentrating on the game in critical positions while outplaying me as black in a way I think only a handful of players can do. Um, now, the funny thing is here that Neiman has admitted to cheating in online chess at the ages of 12 and 16, but insists he has never cheated in over-the-board games. Now, what makes this even more fun is that we, of course, get an online conspiracy theory making the rounds all over social media that the cheating methodology may have been vibrating anal beads uh, as a way of <laughs> transmitting uh, messages to Neiman, uh, although there is no evidence of that yet. I swear I don't make these stories up man now the fun continues in a in a new story from npr um where months of suspicion according to npr erupted in full-throated fury at a professional fishing tournament in ohio where two anglers were caught with egg-shaped weights in their catch an edge of more than seven pounds uh the championship prize money was uh, uh, reportedly at twenty nine thousand dollars And not to be outdone, Pro Poker got involved in this wave of cheating as well. According to a report from Kotaku, accusations of cheating in live games are quite the thing. No 
Sherlock, while chess is embroiled in the most peculiar of cheating allegations involving anal beads, apparently. It now seems the world of poker is having its turn. After an extraordinary moment in a live broadcast high-stakes cash game, people are accusing poker pro Robbie Jade Lou of somehow cheating to win a hand of worth $269,000. So I don't know what's in the water, man, but everybody is either cheating suddenly or everybody's suddenly being caught cheating. And let me tell you, of all of these accusations, the only one that erupted in, in, in fury apparently was the one involving fish, because you can find the video of them discovering the weights online, and I have never heard so much cursing besides talking to you about the uh, some old X-Men comic books or at, or at a Little League baseball game. So... Chris, your take on this wave of cheating, which is just absolutely blowing my mind. Uh, Fifty Shades of Fishing Sports, I guess. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> this, is, this is wild. Um, I, I, I saw this and I thought that you had like, I saw you add this to the doc last night and I was just like, maybe it's a typo. Maybe he's had a bit, uh, you know, one too many. But like, why are we, why are we talking about? chess and fishing like but yeah this is absolutely crazy i i don't know how to make heads or tails of it pun fully intended <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah this is absolutely nuts man yeah and it, it you know you you wondering why do we talk about fishing and, and and chess and poker well you know poker neither here nor there but you know i i love playing chess way to roll into the stereotype here of a nerd um and i'm and i've done a fair bit of fishing in my time and so although i've never gone you know particularly competitive with either it's just amazing to me the lengths that people will go to uh you know for for some prize money apparently um I, I, maybe the economy is struggling truly so badly now that that we have to resort to putting you know weights in fish in order to fight inflation i am not sure but uh, th these stories continue to blow my mind all right, Chris, what is your nerd news story this week? Well, the hits just keep coming for David Zaslav and Warner Brothers Discovery, and I do not mean that in a positive sense. WBD is now being sued for allegedly fudging the numbers with regards to the amount of HBO Max subscribers by about, oh, 10 million. According to the rap, Collinsville Police Pension, you, you can't make this up, a shareholder of the company filed the class action suit alleging that the numbers were falsified, quote, by including as subscribers AT&T customers who had received bundled access to HBO Max but had not signed on to the service, end quote. At this point, you just can't help but laugh, Dave. I don't know if I can laugh about this, man. Um, I think on the one hand, we, we're probably going to have to fully acknowledge that a good deal of this um, uh, alleged misconduct occurred before the merger. Um but let's not let's not mince words here and say that there's been plenty of crap hitting the fans since the merger as well. Um, and I don't think either leadership has a you know really covered themselves in glory here or something. Um, you know, Warner needs to get their act together, man. It's it's just absolutely mind blowing how much how many missteps they've been making over the last few years. Um, and it and it breaks my heart as a DC Comics fan because this is the company that has control over the cinematic futures of some of my favorite superheroes. So I don't know, man. I just I find this this story deeply depressing. I, it feels like at least the very length of our show's history over over two years. I you'd be hard pressed to find a positive news story when it comes to Warner Brothers. So this is just another um, just another you know, 
hit that they've had to take, whether it's, you know, money grabbing on, on behalf of the police pension or, or what have you, or, or when cer- certain things took place, uh, at this point, they'd have to be desperate for some decent PR. Yeah, or, or actually, you know, just do something right for a change. Yeah. And, the, and then the decent PR will just come. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment for this week. When we come back from our first break, we're going to have a Bioware Big Talk all about the state of streaming. Welcome back to this week's main entree. The You know it as our Bioware. And as I previously stated, this kind of stemmed out of our previous discussion that, you know, the news segment from a couple of weeks ago went into uh, a good portion of our big talk a lot of time because it was such a fascinating discussion that just happened organically. So uh, we are going to talk the state of streaming right now. Everybody and their ex-mother-in-law has a streaming app. We have content out of the wazoo. What shows that are popular being canceled and what have you. Um, so we each have three big problems and three solutions. Now, they may or not be directly linked, but um, we're going to start with our each of our three problems and then we'll wrap up on a positive note, hopefully, with our solutions. So, Dave, what is the first big problem that you have with the state of streaming right now? I think this is probably the hottest of hot takes, and uh, I'm probably going to be in the minority with this complaint. Um, However, I think that one of the big problems that streaming has created is the notion of binging. Um, Specifically, when you're, you know, making a television series and then dropping all uh, eight or ten episodes or whatever of this season on the same day. I think what's happening here is that it's created a situation where television series are literally blips on our radar rather than um, appointment television, I guess is what they used to call it, or something that gets discussed, you know, at, at, at the water cooler, so to speak. Streaming shows are pretty short-lived in the collective consciousness. And I think that's a real problem. One of the reasons that shows in the past were able to last so very long on TV is because they were sort of constant companions. Hey, did you see that episode last night? Hey, I wonder where the sh- where the story's going next. You know, I mean, can you really imagine a show like Lost, for example, surviving for long in in a streaming world when they just dropped the whole season? I think so much of what comes out never really truly enters the zeitgeist anymore because it doesn't have a chance to. The people who are really excited about something, and I've been guilty of this myself, particularly with uh, the first season of Netflix's Daredevil. Um, You know, we sit down and we just watch the whole thing in one sitting. And then you're like, okay, I'm done. I stayed up all night and watched this and I'm going to take a nap. And then we never think about it again. We never really talk about it much. You know, you don't connect with other people that are fans. You know, I, I can't see any of the shows that are currently coming out developing, you know, these these rabid fan bases that we've seen in the past. You know, when looking at like, you know, the X-Files fandom, for example, um, or even the Farscape fandom, although that was a much smaller fandom, it was pretty rabid darn fandom, right? Because it's it stayed with you when you watched the show. And so now um, where we kind of compress this down, 
um, the, the, that that can conversation I think isn't happening anymore. You know, this the speculation communally, the the speculation of what might happen next. All of that is is dumped in favor of instant gratification. That's one of the things I find exciting about the fact that that Disney is not doing that on Disney Plus. Um, you know, I I just watched the most recent She-Hulk episode as of this recording uh, this morning, and I, I was, you know, was a constant campaign, you know, there's a new episode of She-Hulk, I better go ahead and check that out. I'm really excited to see what happens next, you know, and, and that sort of mentality so often doesn't exist anymore with these streaming shows, and I think that is a huge misstep. It, it doesn't even, it's, it's... The best way to put it, man, it's like we're keep, we keep dumping water on the on the house plant without letting the previous water have a chance to soak in. You know, just keep just keep pouring it on, and 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 we're kind of drowning the house plant. I, so I'm just not very happy with with the binging model. I think it is to the great detriment of the shows being released, Chris. When I think I even saw a, a news story come across my timeline that Netflix is considering moving to that model of a weekly release. And I think that's incredibly smart. And I totally agree with everything that you stated. And and um, I'm, I'm very happy with the way Disney does things, both with Marvel and, and Star Wars. I felt like dropping three episodes of Andor was a bit too rich. Uh, I think uh, it was a bit much, and I would have liked to splay that out a little bit more. Two would have been enough. I've seen I've seen double double premieres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kenobi was fine. Um, that was right ab- about the right fit. And I guess I, I get that you want to drive people to the app, but three was a bit too rich. Um, while I enjoyed the show, um, but you know, and I just said this in our news segment. But one of the things that Warner Brothers Discovery has kind of lucked into amidst all this mess is the HBO catalog of content. And you want to talk about something that is, you know, whatever the 2022 equivalent of water cooler talk is, you've got it right now with House of the Dragon. And and as much as I enjoy the show, I, I prefer, you know, to compare the two. I think that the Rings of Power is a much better show in totality, but it is undeniable the amount of social media activity and gossip and having favorite characters and theories Every Sunday night at nine o'clock, Twitter especially, is flooded with content all about this one show. And, you you know, there was speculation that like we're going back to Westeros uh, with the dismal, awful last season of Game of Thrones. Would people open themselves up to heading back to this property? And they absolutely are. You know, House of the Dragon was the greatest premiere um in the history of HBO Max i think of maybe even of HBO in in its entirety and so that is something that they can easily rest on and you have you know similar programs of we've as we've noted before with Succession and with you know uh Westworld and that is something that they continue to have and it has given them success over and over and over again and now you have companies like uh you know Disney copying that uh, and now Netflix, you know, maybe the, the grass is indeed greener on the other side. Maybe so, man. Right, what is your first big problem that you see with the current state of streaming? I think the biggest problem is is what brought us to the table here. What, what spawned this idea is you have popular shows that are prematurely canceled. You have people that buy into a show. Maybe they even binge the first season relatively quickly. 
uh, just to fall in love with characters and storylines. And then um, it's, it's abruptly canceled and you're left wanting more and you're, you're desperate for another streaming platform or another network to pick it up. And, you know, with, with such a flooded market, it's very difficult to see where we go from here because there's so much content out there that so many little shows that could, you know, are, are, are fallen by the wayside and they're ravenously devoured by, you know, the, um, the gargantuan shows like Stranger Things or, or the Disney Plus shows or, or the HBO Max shows. So um, it, it's very, very difficult um, in today's market to have a show um, that that's kind of like an indie hit, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, we, we have to acknowledge, too, that, uh, you know, sometimes shows take a little while to find their footing. Um, I would say Farscape, for example, which is, you know, one of my go-to examples of a, of a you know, show with a rabid fan base that really, you know, and loved the show passionately. Um, it took at least a half a season to really start finding its rhythm. I'd argue maybe three quarters of the first season is just them trying out different things and seeing what works and what doesn't. Uh, I would argue that something like The Next Generation probably needed at least two seasons, and by the time season three rolled around, it had figured out what it was, you know? Um, and a lot of these shows that get prematurely canceled never have the opportunity to try to find themselves i guess is, is the best way to put it so so that that is definitely a big issue chris yeah a lot of people say the same about the american version of the office but i i, I enjoyed a great deal of season one but season two is where it really finds its footing and you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find um you know the opportunity to say well wait you have to wait until the second season you know nowadays yeah that's right man all right so you're getting into the nitty-gritty nerdy data right here dave with your second problem well, I mean, I don't think anybody is very clear on what it means to be a successful show in streaming. Um, when you have, uh, you know, a network television show, then, you know, we talk in eyeballs and they have like, you know, Nielsen, the company that, you know, does all the rating stuff and all the calculations and certain households get Nielsen boxes and all that stuff to, you know, watch their viewing habits. And they extrapolate from that sort of a general feel of, uh, you know, how many people watched. Um, but, but with streaming, although they might have, um, clear numbers of how many people watch something that doesn't necessarily translate into more money for the streaming company, you know, in network TV, the more eyeballs you can say are on a given show, the more you can charge advertisers, the more revenue you make and, and thereby the more you are inclined to keep a show around. But with streaming, um, that's just not the case because for most of these, there, there are no advertisers, right? I mean, Hulu has a few ads, but that's not the, the primary way of how Hulu makes money. A good chunk of what they have on Hulu is network TV that's just then posted and streaming after it airs, right? So this is just like a secondary gravy train for the companies. But as far as primary income, that's not a thing. Uh, so you have subscriptions, right? And I think for a lot of these shows, no matter how many eyeballs you have on them, the thing that these companies are looking for is whether there is a subscription bump, right? And I think this is really counterintuitive in a lot of ways. I mean, we just talked about how, um, in my opinion, at least, binging shows isn't very good for the longevity of the show. Um, and because of that, uh, you know, it, it never enters the the 
collective consciousness, a lot of shows don't, right? And so then people aren't like, oh, this show is really good. I'm going to subscribe to Netflix to, to, to watch it, right? That doesn't really happen because all these shows are just blips on our radar. Um, and so saying, oh, more subscribers means more money, means that this is a successful show, I don't think is a fair metric. I mean, look, look at, for example, a, a real good recent example. As of uh, our recording today, we have not received any news yet on if Netflix is planning on renewing uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Now, by every metric, this show has been super successful, right? It, it's being watched by enough people that it's been pretty consistently Netflix's top 10. Um, uh, the critics absolutely adore it. So it's a critical darling. Uh, people are speaking very highly of it. And everybody is just like badgering Neil Gaiman on social media. Hey, has it been renewed? Hey, has it been renewed? Hey, has it been renewed? And Gaiman being the honest dude that he is, is like, no. And, and I don't know. And I have no idea what they're looking for. You know? And at one point, uh, I think he even pointed out that not binging it would be good because it keeps the you know the numbers of people who are watching the show high over a lengthier period of time, and maybe that's something that Netflix is looking for. But we just have no real clear metric of what it takes to be a successful show for for a streamer, um, and and that's problematic because that is when you get shows like let's say the sandman uh struggling to get a, a season two renewal when if this was a network tv show this sucker probably would have been renewed for two seasons already it's a critical darling and and people want more um but netflix is sitting on their hands and that's because they don't have a clear metric of what it means to be a successful show yeah i i, I had immediately thought of that when you started um this topic is is you have to love Neil Gaiman for his open honesty. Um, and, and they're like, what can we do to help? And he's just like, I guess keep watching it. And he's very unclear himself as to what will be the final nail in the coffin to get that renewal. Um, I guess for me, you know, I heard uh, a couple of weeks ago that Netflix is looking towards like an ad supported version. Um, and, 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 trying to figure out other ways to bring in revenue. But I think they've done, you know, Netflix in particular, you know, not to bring it back to Stranger Things, but to bring it back to Stranger Things is they've really done a good job of like merchandising this. And especially with the the, the key demographic of Stranger Things being like preteens and teenagers, um, you know, you know, kids love merch, you know, and that's that's the one thing that they will drive to the store for and so like i even go to walmart and i see stranger things like clothing lines and i think that's just a smart way to bring in revenue and you're gonna have to evolve with the times and figure out another way to bring in revenue like that and engage success yeah and it's funny you say that because i think that has led to problems as well in the past you know the merch thing um if you look at you know what happened with cartoon network i think they got rid of several shows in the past that were really beloved just because they weren't selling enough action figures and and so again you know what 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 are you looking for uh in a in a tv show like what what is your metric for success if it's really action figures you might want to tell the the writers you know and actors and stuff ahead of time and it may maybe make it a little something more power rangery where every other episode they get a new zord or something here's a new toy you can buy right um but but 
you just have to be very, very clear of what, what are you looking for from this television show? So the, the writers, the actors, everybody involved in making of the show can make a conscious decision to say, okay, we're going to lean into this or we're going to lean into that or we don't care what they want. We're just going to you know stick with our artistic vision. But it's just so disingenuous to have a, a piece of art like the first season of The Sandman and then just sit there and say, uh, oh, well, I'm not sure if we're going to renew this or not. Like, y- you must be reaping some kind of benefit from the success of the show. So so what? What? why is it not enough? What is it you're looking for? And I don't think any of the streamers are very clear on, on what it is they're looking for. All right, Chris, what is your second big problem for the state of streaming today? Well, it's the fact that everybody has a streaming service and not necessarily everybody needs one. Um with with the giants like Netflix, HBO Max, and and Netflix, of course, they have the staying power. But you have, um, you know, people subscribers like Paramount Plus that are you know trying to stay afloat, um, and Peacock, you know, with their deal. I think the biggest thing that draws me to Peacock is being able to watch the the um, WWE pay per views to no additional cost. But at, at some point, we have crossed the threshold of, of just overly saturated into a flooded market. Um, I still, you know, can't help but sit back and laugh when I heard that Discovery Plus was a thing, that BET Plus was a thing, that there are so many secondary and tertiary, like, channels that have their own streaming apps. Like, it's, it's too much. And and you cannot ask the average American consumer to subscribe to such a boatload of apps. And, and you know, something's got to give. Yeah, the oversaturated market is, is easily one of the number one issues. It's become sort of, you know, the marketing thing was basically cut the cord, right? I mean, you do your streaming stuff. You don't need cable anymore. You can get rid of the high cable bill. You pay a small monthly fee and you got access to all this cool stuff. Oh, the olden days when Netflix was really the king of the hill and you could find pretty much anything on a singular streaming service. It was it was pretty glorious, right? But at this point, if you added up all the various streamers, you're probably paying about as much as you would for a cable subscription. I don't think it is actually a, a money-saving effort anymore at this point. Um, and the question also becomes, um, you know if you have a streamer that has like one or two big selling points and then everything else is basically meh, yeah, like, like what's, what's the point, right? Um, it almost seems like the easiest thing to do is just subscribe to a streamer, watch something you want to watch and then unsubscribe. Yep. But that becomes, that becomes a huge hassle as well at some point yep. when you're having six or eight streamers, right? So the, the, the whole thing has become extremely non-user friendly, I think. Yeah, for the big reason, you know, as I mentioned, you know, watching the wrestling pay-per-views. But before that, you know, when The Office left Netflix, like that was the biggest thing that, you know, myself and my family watched. Um, but then I found it on uh, a voodoo deal to have the video on demand for the entire series for 30 bucks. And, you know, paying that one time, you know, $30 fee um, as opposed to paying $5 a month over X amount of months, it really wasn't, you know, worth the squeeze. Yeah, that's exactly right, man. All right, Dave, what is your third and final problem in the state of streaming? Okay, this this is going to be an, uh, another hot take moment, so, so strap in. I lament the death of the filler episode. 
So basically, in, in network television shows that have to fill 22 or 24 episodes in a year, there are basically two types of episodes. The episode that uh, advances the overall plot or story of the series or of the season, and then the quote-unquote filler episode, individual one-shot stories done in ones, right, that don't necessarily um, contribute to an overarching arc. I love filler episodes. I think they're oftentimes some of the, the best episodes that television series produce, especially when they become a little older. Um, like two, three seasons in, you start getting uh, writers, directors, actors wanting to experiment with their characters a little bit, and they start doing really, really cool stuff. When I think of the X-Files... Um, and and some of the best stuff that the X-Files produced in its original run, I do not really think of the alien stuff at all. Um, the big overarching series story of the conspiracy and, and in the government and the aliens, and that is not the stuff I think of. I think of, you know, creature flicks, basically, mini uh, horror episodes, things that are super memorable, like the episode Home, for example, or... Um, uh, there was this black and white episode that was like a tribute sort of to old Frankenstein movies where they come into the small town and, and they literally did the whole episode in black and white. Um, and those sorts of episodes no longer exist in, in the age of streaming because streaming is very lean, right? It's like, how many episodes do you need to tell your story? Eight, six episodes, eight episodes. That seems to be about the limit sometimes, right? They, they, don't even do really full half seasons anymore as they used to be called 12 or 13 episodes. And so everything is extremely lean and everything serves the overall story. And that's great to a certain extent because there is a difference between movies and TV. If I want something that is lean and every moment contributes to the larger story, then I will watch a movie. But if I want to spend a little bit more time with the characters and I want to get to know them, I want to I see how they react in different situations, then I want television, or at least that's how it used to be. And so I think when when a television series experiments a little bit, and they, they'd always do it in the filler episodes, and that's where a lot of fun is to be had. Um, you know, one of my favorite Farscape episodes is a body-swapping episode had nothing to do with the larger overarching story about, you know, wormholes and stuff, but it's just a blast. And, and I think we just, we killed the filler episode. And I know people call them filler episodes because they don't, they don't actually do anything with the bigger story and they're boring. And no, they're not. They're, they're another way of, of interacting with these characters and seeing them go through different situations. Plus I love a good done in one story. What is wrong with telling me a complete story in 42 or 45 minutes? You know, I like a good one shot uh, comic book too. I think it's a, it's a lost art almost at this point to just tell a story in 22 pages and move on with life instead of you know stretching it to four or six issues or you know make it a 12 issue maxi story or something you know um so i miss filler episodes and streaming is the the most obvious culprit of what is killing filler episodes chris gods you're such a nerd <laughs> i know i know i can't help myself um yeah that's it's kind of what i love about what she hulk is doing because Dave, what's the one thing that all the dude bros are waiting for in this series? Oh, Daredevil, of course. And the 
the wink at the camera, the breaking. It's like this huge meta, like fourth wall break. It's like fourth wall upon fourth wall of just like, yeah, this is my show. And I know why you're here and you're going to be completely dissatisfied. I love that they are stringing this out so much. Uh, Yeah. So my greatest observation over the past few years, particularly with like MCU content, is the rabid impatience of the American media. We have become so spoiled with content and media that we have absolutely zero patience. You can boil this down to something like if, if, if a web page takes you know, longer than 10 seconds to load up, something is obviously wrong with the internet or our device, and we have to take it in for repair because there's no way that it could take this long to load. Or there's no way that we would have to wait seven or eight episodes until the prominent male character shows up in a female-led series. How dare they? Um, These kids were obviously not raised by dial-up internet. I can still hear the AOL sounds in my nightmares. Um, Like, it's hilarious to me how impatient we have become as a society. And and looking at... Uh, She-Hulk, like the wedding episode, is is absolutely uproarious to me. I love the oh, wedding episode. Oh, so good! I I loved it. But but it had absolutely diddly to do with squat. Exactly. And I love and I absolutely love how how she even said at the beginning of the episode. Well, it's pretty inconvenient, right? But that's how weddings usually pop up. <laughs> you know, and I but it, that that's what I'm kind of talking about. Is this has sort of standalone episode that takes our main character or characters, puts them in an interesting situation, and by the end of the runtime, it's it's done and resolved, and you move on, right? Um, I miss those, man. I really do. And yes, I'm a giant nerd for that, perhaps. But but man, you weren't there in the glory days of the X Files. Everybody was talking about the alien stuff, and I was talking about the 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 dude that could stretch himself and make himself real like skinny and like squeeze through tiny little holes so he could kill you and eat parts of you. That was my jam, man. You know, forget the alien conspiracy stuff. I wasn't those little standalone monster features. That was what I was all about. I would say that the. Um... The She-Hulk, the most recent one, at least of this recording, is is the one where she goes to Blonsky's, like, whatever retreat center, the meditation center. That was another great filler episode and, like, another subversion of expectations. We've we've become so conditioned to just have our expectations fulfilled so much to where we could, like, plot what what is going to come next. And, and foreshadowing is all but the most obvious thing. But I think it's done a really great job of that. Um, while we're on that subject, though, I bet you really love that DS9 episode where they went to back to like 1940s newspaper writing. And, and Absolutely, uh, I did. It's such a great episode. Dude, I'm not going to lie. My, one of my all-time favorite DS9 episodes is the baseball episode. Oh, yeah. What does that have to do with Diddly Squat? Yeah, nothing. But it was a, but it was a great, great episode and a great situation to put those characters in. It's a great feature for the true star of the show, my guy Rom. That's right. I love <laughs> I love Rom so much. Rom is my guy. Now that's <laughs> nerdy. That's nerdy. Yes, you you too are a giant nerd, Chris. All right. So, what is your uh, last big problem? that uh, you think that uh, this whole streaming world is facing. This kind of could be tied into my previous one about the flooded market, but also Netflix keeps rising uh, its cost for subscribers. And so rising cost of subscribers, every every app has gone up over the past calendar year. Um, it's become more stringent on, on the wallet or pocketbook or cash app or what have you, um, PayPal. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, it's getting tougher and tougher out there. And, and Netflix has overextended themselves to the point where they're really cracking down about password sharing or what have you, or limiting screens. I rarely get to watch Netflix unless I make everybody go to bed early. Um, so, and, and you know what, this, this is another big takeaway from Zaslav taking over HBO, uh, HBO max all of a sudden has a, uh, screen limit. So, uh, way to go Zaslav. Um, so yeah, the rising cost for subscribers and the way that they're really cracking down upon, you know, you know, large families even, um, is really stringent upon American consumers. And you've seen companies like YouTube go with things like YouTube TV or Hulu plus live TV to try and, you know, differentiate the market and offer different things to, you know, the audiences, but, uh, it's becoming tough. I mean, like Hulu plus live TV, I think it's like $60 a month. That is not cheap. And that doesn't even include, you know, things like Netflix or Disney plus before you add those on there. So if there's particular program things, the MCU shows or the star Wars shows that you're going to Disney plus for, you got to add that to your Hulu subscription. Uh, I think YouTube TV is like $75 or $70 a month. It is not cheap. Yeah. And, you know, there's a reason that I literally have an old-fashioned antenna hanging on my house because I actually, you know, use my antenna for local channels. And I just refuse to subscribe to, to Hulu or YouTube TV stuff to watch live TV. I mean, dude, that for that we had cable. Like, the whole point of streaming was to not do that right like to, to on demand you know you watch it when you feel like it so so that seems really counterintuitive to me those little add-ons but yeah the rising cost is absolutely ridiculous man and they're all going up and what fascinates me to no end is that they say yeah, yeah it's you know production cost production cost i mean it costs a lot of money to make this content for you yeah sure blah 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 but then you keep like turning around and canceling the shows um, and having to start from scratch, one of the other reasons that television series can continue to run, even though their ratings decline over time on uh, network TV, is because the overhead cost is eliminated, right? You, you know, the costuming, a lot of the, the sets, you know, they've already been built. You know, if you, if you have, for example, something like a Star Trek show, you have a standing set with the Enterprise. That's not cheap to make, right? And so you're not going to have usually a star trek show that you run for one season then you're like okay we're done and then you just t- tear down all the sets like you didn't really recoup your investment right so but but i feel like the streamers feel a little inefficient sometimes maybe you know like if you're going to make a show you know you you put up all the the infrastructure to to make that show you make it for eight episodes and you're like okay that's canceled let's start for scratch with a something different you know of course cost is going to be high but if you have a show that's fairly popular and you run it for five six years and you you really make use of of what you got there um that works much better so yeah i mean part of that is i think just plain old inefficiency all right dave enough of our griping and airing of grievances let's head to the positive side we're looking for solutions now and your first one is well, uh, I mean, we hinted at it earlier, but more streamers should use Disney's release model. They should release episodes one every week, the way network television did. And I don't mean to sound like an, an old grumpy guy when I say that, but um, it, it works. You know, it, it keeps uh, the the television show more in in the uh, in the collective consciousness of the of the of, the, of our society. It, it 
creates water cooler moments. It builds suspense over time because you don't know what's going to happen next and you're excited to see what's next. I think it's just time for streamers to realize that television shows are, in fact, not movies. And, and they should not be, you know, viewed in a singular sitting. You know, it, the whole point of, of serialized storytelling is that it is, in fact, serialized. But so many streamers don't serialize. They just say, here it is. You can sit down and watch it as one big movie. And and that's that's not what serialized storytelling is all about. So I guess you could say go old school and release them one at a time. Yeah, I think it I think it's beneficial for Disney and HBO Max. Like I said, I know I know exactly where I'm going to be at nine o'clock every Sunday night. Um, I know what I'm going to be doing first thing in the morning. I wake up early for work so I can watch the latest Disney Plus episodes, you know, before I wake the kids up for school. Um, I think it's a tried and true method that um, is is a welcome change to the current trend. Absolutely. So what is what is your first solution to fixing the current streaming issues? So perhaps here's a hint at next week's episode, but I'm, I'm going to lean into my sports nerdery here. Um, you, you know, most athletic contracts between athletes and their respective clubs or teams are typically negotiated, um, you know, on, on year long deals. So you could come with a, with a one year contract or a two year contract guaranteed or, or what have you three, four, however long. Um, and one of the strategies, I don't know how feasible this is or what have you, but like if you're coming, you know, with a pitch for a show, I think I would hope that we could be like, listen, this is a this is a one season story that I have, you know, similar to what you have when you pitch like a comic book. Be like, listen, this is a six issue miniseries. This is a complete in totality series that I want to tell. I'm reading Rom V's The Many Deaths of Layla Starr right now from Boom Studios. It's an absolute masterpiece. That's a six issue miniseries. Cut, dry, don't rinse, don't repeat. It's done. Um so maybe you have something agreed upon on the front end. And of course, sports teams can, you know, terminate a contract, you know, before it's time. If, 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 you know, the things are not met or if they're not playing up to performance, you know, what have you. But like, I think we have to get some of those agreements on the front end somehow. And so you say, well, Chris, you know, some of these people are, you know, first time directors or first time showrunners or first time directors, then, um, I, I'm trying to knock out two or three problems with one. We have so many freaking uh, streaming apps. We need to morph some of these apps into like a minor league system where if a show, you know, like they do with like the EPL and like if a show, if, it, if a show does well, it gets promoted. And if, if a show does not do well, it gets either canceled or relegated to like one of the minor streaming sources. But like we, we, we can't just have these, shows that have longer form storytelling in their sites and they're just canceled after one season and we're all just left wanting. We've got to be able to figure this out in, in, in a way that's satisfying for all parties involved. So, you know, here, here I have a show that is, you know, two seasons. And if we, if we do well, then I can, you know, go more on that. Um, or, or if I have a three season series or what have you, and if you, you know, get an agreement, on like a lower, you know, or lower thing. Uh, I think Supergirl did this. It premiered on CDS. It didn't get quite the numbers they wanted. So they moved it to their, their minor league system of the CW. So, so more of that, because 
I'm just trying to wrap my brain around a solution to this, you know, paper girls or Lovecraft country or um, utopia situation where we have popular shows that are getting canceled way before their complete story is told. Even if they would just include in a basic standard contract, hey, we're giving you eight episode first season, but if we cancel you, we're required to give you, uh, I don't know, a two hour wrap up movie so you can yeah. finish your storytelling. Yes. I think I think that hurts a lot of shows these days, too, is when they don't have a clear ending. You know, I mean, they, they used to send shows into uh, into syndication, right? And now it's just it sits on streaming forever. Right. So anybody can come along and be like, hey, this show from four or five years ago on Netflix, I've never seen before. It looks interesting. And then they watch eight episodes and they're like, where's the rest? You know, um, I don't think it's an, any incentive for uh, a back catalog to be a selling point f- for people to be like, hey, uh, you know, Netflix has this really cool back catalog of stuff that they've made in, in years past. But hey, it's all incomplete. Right, you're never going to get a finished story if you watch it. But if you go in and you at least try to have some kind of closure for people, then then that becomes something that people are much more willing to to watch on the front end, right? And then it becomes a selling point. Hey, we're the streaming service that does, leaves no plot uh, threads dangling. We always finish our stories. You can trust us. You can invest in us. If there's a new show you're interested in, subscribe. You're going to get a complete show, even if it's just a two-hour wrap-up movie after season one. All right. That that leads uh, quite beautifully into your second solution, I believe. Yes. And that's just a clear path to complete storytelling. There is nothing from, from like the, the writer in me hates nothing more than seeing a story sit there incomplete, right? And I know that oftentimes things don't work out the way you want them to and you can't have your your epic 10 season run to tell your story. But oftentimes you can at least wrap it up. And again, I will point to, you know, Farscape, which, you know, originally the cancellation broke my heart. The sci-fi channel had announced that they had picked up Farscape for two more seasons, but apparently there was like some kind of option in there that they didn't have to take the second one if they didn't want to. Um, and the whole production team made the the finale of the first of those two seasons with the, you know, belief that they're getting another sh- season and then boom, suddenly they were canceled. And then it took a couple of years to get the financing together, but they came back and they said, okay, well, we can't do a whole season, but we can do a mini series. You know, we can, we can do like a three episode mini series or something, and we can wrap up the story we compress some stuff down. We move some things around. Sure. We have to drop a few things, but at least a story will be complete for the fans. Um, and I just, it just irks me. It irks me to no extent when, when, it's unbelievable to me when I watch something and I'm invested in it and then it gets cut off before it can finish its story. It just, it, every piece of me, everything inside of me just rankles against that. It just bugs me. It makes me want to, I did not watch the sci-fi channel for probably 10 years after, after Farscape was canceled. I just refused. I was like, sci-fi can kiss my butt. I don't, I don't care what they're putting out. I'm not watching anything that sci-fi is putting out. They canceled Farscape. Like that, that's the sort of vindictive guy I get when it comes to incomplete storytelling. So I think these streamers need to provide a clear path. If your show doesn't hit, this is how you get to wrap up your story. If your show is a hit, this is what we can do. Even if they say, you know, every show needs to take the Buffy the Vampire Slayer approach. 
you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, kind of coined the phrase big bad, right? Each each season had its own villain, and that w- villain was overcome by the end of the season. There was some kind of final- finality there, and then the next season was sort of a fresh start. It, it felt complete. Any season really could have been the last season, and it would have worked. And I think maybe that's what we need to do, but something needs to be put in place that allows uh, for a sense of of completion. Of closure with the characters that people fall in love with, no matter what form that takes. New ni- uh, new nerd byword drinking game. Every time Dave says the word Farscape, take a shot. Please don't be operating any motor vehicles while you're listening to these episodes. <laughs> I'm telling. I'm telling you, alcohol poisoning may be possible. <laughs> we need a content warning. <laughs> I- I'll be sure to put one on this episode then. Um, no, I totally, I'm right there with you. I think, um, maybe this is just the new normal and maybe the solution is as creators, you just start writing one season, you know, wrap ups, you know, storylines, because what's the solution? You don't go to a library into a book story book series and you open the, you know, the, um, the the jacket cover of the book and it says warning this book is incomplete this story does not wrap up like although although in fairness that's prop that's probably what's going to happen to game of thrones right i mean it's just going to say you know in the first book warning if you read this the last book was never written by george r r martin <laughs> like that that's where we're cruising i think is pretty clear come on george he can do it yeah all right chris so what is your uh next solution well, I, I'm really um, pleasantly pleased with the, the Disney bundle. And I think with such such a flooded market when it comes to streaming apps is we're going to have to have like an a la carte menu of select, you know, app groupings or what have you. So something like the Disney bundles to where it is not absolutely crippling. I've seen Paramount Plus do something like this. I think they that Viacom owns Showtime or something like that. So you can get Paramount Plus and Showtime, which who's really clamoring for Showtime, but nonetheless they're doing something. So um <laughs> uh HBO Max and Discovery Plus, who needs Discovery Plus? But no- nonetheless, it's it's something. It's growth. But yeah, we've got to figure out a way to to cut costs for consumers because uh with you know the rising cost of inflation and not to turn this into an NPR podcast, but people are struggling and you know you can't get everything. Yeah, you know, that's that's probably fair. Um I I also think it would be uh, it would be interesting um as a way of drawing in more audience members to kind of have the streaming place be like the the premier place, but then like what 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 is to stop for example Disney from from putting like Obi-Wan Kenobi on on TV? let's say six months after it was on Disney plus. Right. And then people, and then they can say like, Hey, you know, if you subscribe to Disney plus, you can get a lot of this kind of stuff with your subscription. Right. And that can be also another measurement of, of how uh, I'm back on the metrics. I'm sorry, man. That could be another way of how you measure how, how a show is successful. Right. So you have your streaming numbers and then you slap it on TV and you see how many people actually want to watch it. You get the ad revenue from, uh, from airing it on TV. And then, uh, 
you could say, hey, hey, this, this this show is drawing in more subscribers because we actually put it in front of some people and now they want more, right? But there has to be more, right? So you can't just have like a one-off season there. But hey, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself there. Well, and I, I think um, I think something that we need to really take into consideration, and I meant to mention this earlier, is that there are still large swaths of at least American consumers that are not overtly streamers. There are still plenty of people who have not cut the cord. There are still plenty of American homes that still have uh, either cable or DirecTV or what have you. Is Dish Network still a thing? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, I, I think so. Oh, okay. Well, so there's still plenty of people who still have their standard, you know, television packages. And, um, and so if you're if you're looking to create content, you don't want to negate that or or completely dismiss that. And so, you know, send some of these streamers that have no business having a streaming app, Discovery Plus, uh, back to network television. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, what is your final solution? That sounds bad. That sounds really bad. The final solution. What is your third solution? My third solution is that seasons need to expand again. Um, I think there is something nice about a, sh- a quick shot of television that is like six hours long or something, and it's telling, you know, a, a fast-paced, coherent story. Um, but you know, how many episodes is She-Hulk supposed to be? Like nine episodes or something. So you know that. For 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 a show that is basically like almost structured like a sitcom or something, you have twenty two episode twenty two minute episode lengths, right? Roughly speaking, you could you could almost air this like a sitcom on 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 television. It feels like there's just not enough She Hulk there. Nine, you know nine, what I mean? Nine episodes is what we're gonna have. So we only have two more at this point. Jeez, you know what I mean though. Now imagine if we would have had you know let's say 22 half hour episodes, which is the you know equivalent of like 11 hour long episodes or something, right? That, that, that feels a little more like there's, there's more to be done there. You can have some filler episodes to expand on the characters. You know, you, you can take your time with world building. I just think that maybe our seasons have gotten too short, you know, in, in our, um, in our in our quest for brevity, I guess we're just making it almost too fast. We're we're getting closer and closer to a television series just basically being an overlong movie. You know, oh here's a show. It's four. It's four. It's four episodes that are fifty minutes each. Yeah, well, it takes almost that long to watch the first Star Wars. So congratulations, you made a movie, not a TV show. Um, and so you know, my whole complaint about the filler episode just comes back to there isn't a lot of real estate to experiment within the format. You know, and 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 that's what's missing is just give these shows a few more episodes. That you know, you've also probably noticed if you look at the Disney Plus shows, for example, that oftentimes the endings feel a little rushed. That that is also because there's not enough real estate there. If you if you are demanding a show be six or eight episodes long, it's very very hard to do TV in that time frame. You know, let give it twelve, give it fifteen, give it some more time. You know. And so, so that's one of my biggest problems with with streaming. It's just that there isn't enough there. There, you know, I want to immerse myself in a world. I want to, I want to spend a lot of time with these characters. I just got to know Miss Marvel, and suddenly she's gone. You know, and, and next time I'm going to see her, it's probably going to be on the big screen. Um, it's just it it just defeats the purpose of what long form 
serialized storytelling is supposed to be. So give give these people some more episodes to tell their stories, people. And I think that's one of the biggest praises that we had when Daredevil Born Again was announced, that it was what, like 22 episodes. Um, so that, that's something I'm looking forward to, but I, I, I'm right there with you. It feels, even with the success and how much I've enjoyed the Disney Plus shows, the MCU shows in particular, seems just like a conveyor belt at the uh, conveyor belt at this point. And we just churn one out after the other. And we just, it's it's become so processional. And by the time I really start digging into a program, it is wrapping it up and in and more often than not, unfortunately, in unsuccessful fashion. I think that you've been you've had uh, be hard pressed to find uh, more than two or three that have wrapped up well. I'm, I'm excited to see that Loki is confirmed to have a second season. I'm excited to see the the misadventures of that cast and crew to continue. Um I think we have confirmed Miss Marvel a second season and it's all but confirmed for She-Hulk. So I am excited that they're going to get second seasons. I would like to see more uh, in those seasons though. See, that's the other thing too. Like, like a lot of those shows now for, for Disney plus in particular, I think those shows are just, like you said, conveyor belts, but they are conveying the audience to the theater, right? They all seem like overlong advertisements. Look, here's a new character. You want to see Miss Marvel again? Watch the Marvels. You know, you want to see She-Hulk again? She'll probably pop up in the next Avengers movie, right? Like, it feels like they're just pushing us towards, you know, come and spend more money after you gave us money to stream these shows. If you want to see these characters again, you better come to the theater and spend more money. You know, it's just, I know it's all a business, you know, that that's, that's definitely not the point. But to me, television series have always been something distinctively different in their storytelling approach than movies. And the blending of them that that Disney is doing and the blending of them in general that all the streamers are doing by keeping reducing episode counts and making this very, very tight, narratively continuous things is so different from what television shows are supposed to be. And so I'm, I, I just I just miss TV shows, man, something that feels like a TV show. All right, Chris, your last solution well, my my biggest thing is from the streamers, the streaming companies perspective is to make more cost effective decisions rather than punishing, uh, you know, the consumers and your customers and your clientele for irresponsible fiscal decisions that you made. I'm talking about you, Netflix, backing up the Brinks truck to Adam Sandler to make the same freaking movie with a different wig and a mustache every single six months or whatever. Yeah. So make more cost effective decisions. So we're not left to pay the punishment for your irresponsibility. Um, you know, paying $20 million to an individual like Dave Chappelle, just to, you know, make apologies for him and have to go through that PR nightmare. Um, so you know, just be smart about it and, and stop overextending yourself. And, you know, Netflix is probably the most egregious and the most noteworthy when it comes to, exorbitant spending and now the time has come to to fit the bill and they're all of a sudden looking at you know uh introducing ad supported versions and limiting screens and going after the nefarious password sharers and 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 you know so get get your house in order uh netflix mostly you I have to admit that I had milk coming out of my nose laughing so hard when I saw your note in our doc, stop giving Adam Sandler a blank check. Um, and I wasn't even drinking milk at the time. So that was pretty <laughs> impressive, Chris. Um, uh, 
but yeah, I think that's probably a good a good point. They seem to be spending a lot of money on on stuff that is questionable at best. I can't say that any of Adam Sandler's recent output leading up to his Netflix deal had been all that good. Um, and and then the Netflix output itself was not all that good either. So I'm <laughs> I'm kind of just wondering what was up with that deal. Like it doesn't seem like you really bought. Who did they make this for? <laughs> exactly, exactly for Adam Sandler. For, uh, he... for eight year olds from 1994. Yeah, it seems it's just very very odd situation um so yeah I, I don't think they're necessarily always smart with that sweet sweet subscriber money that they get you know all right that wraps up our byword big talk on the state of streaming what are your problems what are your solutions hit us up on social media at nerd byword on twitter and instagram but when we come back from this our final break we descend into madness <laughs> We are here once more for the October final segment known as Nerd Nightmare. And let me pass this hot potato over to you, Dave. Oh, oh, oh. I'm looking forward to talking about this one. Uh, so we're talking this week about The Descent, a 2005 British horror film written and directed by Neil Marshall. Um, the movie stars Natalie Mendoza, Shauna McDonald, Alex Reed, Maya Burring, Nora Jane Noon, and Saskia Mulder. Um, and it is a cool little flick, guys. Uh, so here is the tagline from Google. A year after a severe emotional trauma, Sarah goes to North Carolina to spend some time exploring caves with her friends. After descending underground, the women find strange cave paintings and evidence of an earlier expedition, then learn they are not alone. Underground predators inhabit the crevices and they have a taste for human flesh. So I could talk at length about this and set the stage, but I think I'm just going to go ahead and dump our audience cold into your reactions, and then I'll try to, to give it some context. So jump on in, Chris. What was your take on The Descent? Well, first and foremost, it was truly disorienting to find out that the film was actually filmed in the UK because it actually looks like uh, you know North Carolina, which is not too far of a drive for us. So I, I swear, I was like, I, I feel like I've driven past this place many a time. Um, yeah, so here's just some observations. Um, Shauna, Shauna McDonald's character, I believe her name is Sarah, has to be the most clu yes. clueless woman. How do you not know your your husband is cheating on you? Because, you know, um, you know, everybody's significant other and best friend have those longing looks after one another once they get out of the Whitewater Rapids. Um, like he forgot which one he was married to for a second. Like, girl, you are so clueless. Um, <laughs> and then, and then she dips right after the funeral and may not have even shown up to the funeral. Like, hmm. And then like a year later, they're bullying you into going into this unknown cave. Come on, choose your friends better. Um, <laughs> come on. um I, I feel like, and I had to do some background research because my suspicions were correct, uh, directed and written by Neil Marshall, who's who's written some good stuff and, and directed some good stuff before. But this is very much 2005 dudes writing chicks. I think uh, one of the little um, X-ray um, view thing said that the production team nicknamed the film Chicks with Picks. 
like it's 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 pretty cringy when it comes to what like men think women do uh you know in the absence of men like how women interact with one another of course one was cheating on another one with the husband uh, of course this is what they get down to and they all have these infighting it's like you know mean girls underground like come on um so aside from that, it was it was pretty scary um, and anxiety inducing. My claustrophobia was kicking in. Um, I'm very glad to reaffirm myself as an introvert, and um, all the thrill seekers who have to just get the next big high going and making you go out and do things can kick rocks. Um, extroverts are so annoying. <laughs> so uh, I thought that the design of the crawlers i believe that they are called was yes pretty generic nothing out of the ordinary um i saw like in the trivia bits as i was watching that there was some heavy influences and callbacks to things like journey to the center of the earth nosferatu things of that nature so that was pretty interesting um the one girl that died um also i i, I was kind of rooting for juno like Girl, the guy, I guess he got held accountable in the affair and everything because he got whacked, you know, within the first five minutes. That was pretty extreme. But like at the same time, she was, you know, a, a, you know, a pretty good baddie. Also, she was hot. So maybe I was, you know, um, a bit skewed in my in my rooting interest there for Juno. Um, but girl like snuck up on her after she had just killed a crawler and was surprised when she went through the neck. Like, you can't be that surprised. Like, why in the world? Would you not be like, hey, Juno, it's me sneaking up behind you in complete silence while you're holding a pick? Uh, come on, girl. Uh, you deserve that. Not really, but just seriously. Um, I, I see what they were going for with Sarah's journey as like going from this, I'm in PTSD, I'm having bad dreams about my daughter's birthday cake, and then she's at the window, um, and then her spiritual self you know, journey is like now she gets to kill her husband's mistress slash her best friend at the end of this. Um, but it, it, it was it left me a little bit wanting. Um, the ending was spectacular when when I think that is that Juno's like body that sits in the car next to her. We're, we're, we, need, we need to talk more about the ending here in just a second. So, yeah. So, and yes. And then I saw the extended cut where it's all a dream. And so, so that was pretty cool. Um, my biggest observation is how in the hell did they make a second one? <laughs> yeah, I have I have many observations. Are you are you are you ready for for yeah. me to jump in? Let's hit it. Let's hit it. Just justice justice for Juno. Okay, so I will I will say that I uh, saw this uh, in theaters when it came out in two thousand five, uh, and I absolutely adored this um, in a dark theater. This sucker jump started my claustrophobia out of the out of the just out of the wazoo, and uh, the tension between the characters, the fact that it actually was trying to say something, even if it's in it, even in its clunky early two thousandsness, um, really spoke to me. I absolutely adore the fact that they actually tried to do a movie with an all, all female cast for the most part. Right, all the main characters were women. Um, that was pretty unusual for this time period, especially in the horror genre. So I was like, you know, immediately like set up and paid attention because of that. Um, what I adore uh, about this movie is how it just really gets into your head, especially if you're watching it in the dark. Um, 
I, I will freely admit this is one of the few movies that I saw in theaters that actually gave me the heebie-jeebies afterwards. I remember leaving and uh, afterwards and telling my wife, I'm never going into a cave system. Just never. Just don't, just don't, never. Just don't even think about it. No caves for me ever again. And and I've kind of stuck to that since. So, um, the the conflict between between Sarah and Juno was really interesting to me because, you know, it's easy to to look at Juno as the villain, but I think that's that's really an oversimplification of of the story, right? So part of me was was rooting for Juno, and part of me thought, you know, holy crap, dude, you know, you you're a really despicable person so it's it's you're kind of of two minds of the character and that kind of that kind of complexity is also pretty rare in horror movies i think you've noticed by now watching a lot of these horror movies that you get a lot of one-dimensional stereotypical canon fodder characters right um and so seeing that kind of complexity was was a lot of fun too now as of for the ending um so the way this the the ending plays out for the um listeners who have not seen the movie and if you have not seen the movie what are you doing listening to this pause this go watch the movie and come back for our discussion of the ending we'll still be here okay we're not going anywhere um but the way the ending plays out is you know you have sarah and you have juno left and and sarah you know hurts juno i think she like messes with her knee or something like pickaxe in the leg or something and then leaves her there and crawls out of the cave system and and the assumption is that juno's dead and then Sarah gets into her car, and then you see, like, I guess the ghostly spirit of Juno sitting next to her in the car, and she screams, and that's the ending that American audiences got. The original ending that was actually released in the UK and how it was filmed is what you saw, Chris, as the as the extended cut, right? Which is that all of that, her climbing out of the cave was all just a a, a vision, a dream or whatnot. And she's laying in that cave system and she's going to get eaten too. And then it fades to black. Apparently the the people who were releasing the studio that was releasing the movie in the United States thought that ending was too bleak and asked that it be cut off sooner. So then you'd ask the question about the sequel. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make the claim that the sequel is far inferior to the original. Um, but the way the, the sequel plays out is it picks up with the original ending, the extended ending, only Sarah actually manages to pick herself up and crawl out of the cave, is found, and has no recollection of what happens. And so they play the amnesia angle. And a friend, another friend of Juno's, who apparently is not friends with Sarah, uh, decides to enlist Sarah to go back in that cave system and see if Juno survived too. And that's basically the sequel. Yeah. So the amnesia angle didn't work very well. They abandoned the whole, like, you know, close-knit female friends thing. It's, you know, a co-ed cast this time. A lot of the stuff that makes the first one so interesting, um, you know, gets abandoned. And so is there a lot of, like, dudes riding chicks, as you said, uh, in this movie? Absolutely. But it's such a cool effort for the time period of 2005. And it was such a cool effort for the horror genre too, which is just so unusual to do what they did with this movie. And it does have some really genuinely creepy stuff going on in it. And it really messes with your claustrophobia if you're watching it in a dark room. I I, I just have to commend this movie. I've always really enjoyed it. And I, and I fairly frequently rewatch it for the creep factor. 
I um I I neglected to mention in my initial rant. Uh, shouts to the absolute queen, Mayanna Buring, who shows up as uh, Sam, I believe, in this film. You know her best as uh, Tessia DeVries in The Witcher, uh, who is uh, Yennefer's teacher in in the first season. Um, also, I'm I'm very glad to hear you have similar thoughts about caving and spelunking. Um, and I was glad to see in my research that it was not in fact film here, uh, because I. I was, I was, I was truly, I wasn't like overly scared, but like I was a little bit, um, you know, I stayed up and, you know, it was like 1130 last night when I finished it, I stayed up, played some Madden to decompress. Um, uh, and that's what happens when you watch a real, that's what happens when you watch a real horror movie. You're never able to go to bed right afterwards. You always have to spend a little time doing more, um, bright and shiny things first. Yeah. So if you ever ever get the notion that we will ever go caving or anything like that together, I'm going to kick your ass. So. <laughs> oh, I, I, I have, I have absolutely no interest like you. I'm generally a pretty introverted guy yep. and, and extroverts are truly, truly exhausting. I will watch about it, read about it, never do it myself. That, that seems fair. You know, the only thing now that I think about it, that really, you know, People have affairs and it takes two to tango and you can't just like lay all that on Juno. But the one thing that always did in this movie really rubbed me the wrong way is when she just like makes the executive decision to take the whole group in an unexplored area. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of the cave. And I'm like, and leave and leave the book behind. Yeah. You jerk. Yeah. You absolute jerk. You didn't even check with anybody if they're okay with that. You just made the executive decision that you were gonna do that. Oh, that was oh that was another thing. Everybody was saying it's a tourist trap, it's a tourist trap. You're tourists. Yeah. Go 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 to the tourist trap as a tourist. That's okay. It's absolutely fine. Um also, like the biggest, probably the biggest like WTF moment was I believe her name was Holly, who is like booking it through there. And how did that end up for you? Not well. <laughs> yeah it's a good it's a good movie i think and i'm and i'm glad it it gave you a little bit of a creep factor i don't think we've creeped you out enough this year no no but next week rest assured we will <laughs> all right that wraps up nerd nightmare and a complete episode of the nerd byword we thank you so much for coming along this journey with us if you like what you hear please like subscribe rate and review on your favorite podcasting platform whether that's apple Podcasts, spotify tune in radio amazon music or our very own website nerdbyword.com and of course find us on social media you can find us at nerd by word on twitter and instagram or individually at that nerd dave and at that nerd chris we'd love to hear more about your take on the current streaming landscape and of course what you thought of the 2005 flick the descent and don't forget to check our link tree, which is, of course, linked in our social media profiles, where you can find all sorts of cool stuff like a link to our Discord and merch. And join us next week where we ask the question, does everything truly float down here? And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.